This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. It's almost like two years to the day. I think it is pretty much. Like this is the two-year anniversary of when we said, "Oh dear, <laughs> we better like not meet in person, <laughs> completely isolate from one another." And and uh, here we are. So thank you all very much for coming out today. Um, as I mentioned right after we had service, we have been meeting for zazen, um, and we have been you know we've reopened. And then we had to close down again, and then we reopened again. I think we did that maybe three or four times. And uh, throughout that time, we also really tried different ways to gather. So when the weather was good, or even when it was not so good, um, we held uh, zazen kais outdoors. We had, you know, uh, it was it was a very uh, challenging, but also a very creative time little mosquito nets hanging from the trees, you know, little tarps cut up for Zabatons to be on, and, um, and any excuse that we had, pretty much, we tried to come back in person. So it really, uh, what a relief and what a warm, warm-hearted uh, feeling I have to be back in this space with, uh, with all of you. So today, we are going to have a ceremony, a ceremony of lay entrustment. And uh, has anybody here been to a lay entrustment ceremony before? Mm -hmm. I see some hands. So I know some of you were here for Glenn Noblin's ceremony back in 2012, I think. Uh, this thing was right before I arrived in Austin in 2013. And I know, Choro, you've been to the entrustment ceremonies in Chapel Hill? No, in Richmond? In, <laughs> in Houston, right. Uh, so, full confession, I have never been to a lay entrustment ceremony. <laughs> but I can say a little bit about it because I've been studying. Um, most of all, I, I think of this ceremony and how wonderful to have it on a day when we can return to the Zendo for Saturday. Um, it's a celebration. What are we celebrating? Anyone know what we're celebrating? In part, yes, absolutely. Did you hear that, Pat? <laughs> I asked, what are we celebrating? And Sherry said, Pat. <laughs> Absolutely. The birth of a new Zen entrusted teacher. What's so special about that? to be lay entrusted. So today I want to talk a little bit. I'm, I'm not going to go into a big discussion about the difference between priest practice and lay practice because that is um, boring. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to say boring. It's, um, um, it's kind of a rabbit hole. Um, but I do want to say a little bit of, about it uh, just in, to put it into historical context. So historically speaking, Buddhism has been largely in its 2,500 years of culthood, it has largely been a monastic practice. And that's who was the, that's who were practitioners. Now, there were also householders or lay practitioners who were invited to join the Sangha. So the Sangha quite uh, strictly speaking, are the four kinds of practitioners, and it's divided into gender, uh, gender terms because it was 2,500 years ago. Uh, so there are the lay men, lay women, and then the ordained uh, men and women. Okay. And 
there were different, completely different, not completely, very different uh, expectations and rules for what it meant to be part of the Sangha in those four categories, right? Now this, you know, primarily the, the practice was seen as a monastic practice and the monastics were the ones who were the teachers. And the lay practitioners basically supported the monastics so that the, uh, you know, supported them because they didn't have any, because they didn't have anything because they renounced all worldly affairs and they renounced uh, sexual expression, family life, having a job, touching money, eating afternoon. And this is a practice that still goes on to this day in probably most, almost, almost all of the traditions of Buddhism. Zen is one exception where people who are on the monastic path are not required to be celibate. They're not required to give up all their worldly possessions uh, or to not have a family. Now, individual teachers may say, if you want to ordain, you can't do those things. Right. In some places, I think uh, in Zen also, uh, if you want to be ordained in that tradition, uh, you give up everything to the temple. So, and there's a huge spectrum. And so it's confusing, it can be very confusing. However, in terms of the, uh, the rules and expectations, there are some major similarities. What's the, what's the one thing that's kind of required of all four groups? <laughs> Not even. <laughs> Not even Zazen. Taking the precepts. So before that, though, or part of taking the precepts, something else that you take? Taking refuge. Right? Taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha as the, uh, the, the teacher, the leader of this practice, the enlightened being, uh, enlightenment that exists in all of us. And awakening itself, right? taking refuge in our own awakening to what? To the Dharma, which is what? What's the Dharma we take refuge in? The teachings? That's mm -hmm. part of Dharma. Reality. Reality. <laughs> yeah, right? It's pretty big. It's not just the teachings. It's like, well, the teachings. Uh, what are the teachings? Teachings are all of reality, all of existence. Also sometimes uh, called the law, the law of reality. The Dharma is law. Uh, not laws that are like created by human beings at different times in different contexts, but like the law of reality how things work. And then the third refuge is the refuge in the Sangha. And Sangha can be very narrowly defined, can be narrowly defined as those four kinds of practitioners, that's the Sangha. But even then, in monastic traditions, um, I read recently that, I, I did not know this, that recitation of the Pradivoksha was not, you weren't allowed to do it in the presence of lay people. That, so as a monastic, you would basically uh, do that practice of confession and repentance and uh, confessing basically like these are the rules I, I have uh, endeavored to follow on the path to awakening. And when I fall off that path, which all of us do every month during the full moon or maybe during the new moon, I go and I, I uh, confess. I say, yeah, I did this thing. Not as a, you know, uh, self-flagellation thing, uh, not as a punishment, but as uh, in, in, the, um, in the endeavor of liberation. So it's a very, uh, it's a positive, it's a positive feeling to confess. And then the repentance, which I know is a very loaded term, uh, can be a very loaded term, but basically repentance means vowing to, to do better vowing to adhere 
to cleave more tightly to that which is most important, which you have you yourself have chosen as this is important. And how do I align myself more with what I believe is really important? Right. So all of that in the we do that as a sangha. And so sangha can be very narrowly defined as the group of people who you confess and repent to. And, and in terms of this thing, this little detail that I didn't know about, uh, that monastics didn't necessarily, they didn't talk about their confession and repentance with people who weren't also monastic. Right? And in some ways, that makes some sense, I guess, right? If you, you agree to adhere to a certain set of rules and teachings, uh, you want to gather with other people who have also agreed to those rules, <laughs> not necessarily to people who haven't. So it makes some sense. But the Sangha in the widest sense, so that's a, it's a narrow sense of Sangha, perfectly legitimate and valid. But then there's also widening circles of what is included in Sangha. And uh, in my own practice, I feel like all beings have to be included in that Sangha, which is challenging. It's really, really hard to do. Uh, and you can do it in an abstract way. You can do it in a very practical way. You can do it in the moment. Right? So you're at a protest and you're like, ah, and you see the eyes of someone on the other side, the so-called other side. Right? In that moment, you can widen your heart to include all beings as Sangha. Wow. Blanche Hartman Roshi, who is the founder of this temple, has a story she liked to talk about. She, she uh, referred to frequently of a turning point for her. She was a very strong social, social activist and was at uh, one of these protests. And uh, I think there was a police officer or somebody who was on the, just on the other side of this barrier. Like, I mean, so close, I think she could have reached out and touched him. And in the moment of her fervor and anger and like, and really just not just anger that propelled her to be at the protest in the first place, some anger at an injustice, right? In this moment, she met eyes with this person who was on this other side, so-called other side, and uh, she saw something in his eyes that melted her heart. And it was a turning point for her. So may we all have those turning points, especially in this, uh, in this divisive world and more and more polarized world. So Sangha, so taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is kind of a starting point. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a starting point. And then from there to take, uh, maybe to receive precepts. And in Zen Buddhism, we, uh, whether you're a householder, lay person, or a priest or monastic, we take the same precepts, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. In other uh, lineages, in Chan, uh, in China and Korea, uh, monastics take uh, the full vinaya. But in Japanese then, somehow, Dogen just didn't bring those back from China. Very strange. But more on that uh, some, other, some other time. So historically, though, there have always been lay practitioners that have been uh, renowned for their labors, what they've done, their endeavors to support practice, not just supporting the practice of monastics, but largely to support the practice of monastics by building temples. So two of the most well-known uh, from ancient times, um, lay practitioners were Anapindika and uh, Visaka, both who, uh, were very wealthy and devoted a lot of their energy, time, and wealth to creating temples, monasteries, where many, many people could go and practice. Now, in our own Zen tradition, there are many examples of uh, lay practitioners whose attainment into ultimate reality uh, surpasses those of monastics. Vimalakirti is one example. Layman Pong and his daughter are examples. 
So it's not that there haven't been this, there hasn't been this uh, undercurrent of lay practice of uh, turning towards enlightenment, but it's very, uh, it's not the emphasis in early Buddhism and middle Buddhism. And actually it's not even until the 1940s when in both Burma and India, other Southeast Asian countries, attention was, was shifted away from cultivating monastic practice itself and only monastic practice to bringing meditation to lay practitioners, to inviting lay practitioners to come on retreat, to come sit in the temple to, you know, to do zaza. As opposed to other ways that lay practice manifested, which were uh, taking refuge, uh, cultivating merit by doing good works, and ultimately by leading a good life, whatever that meant in one's own circumstances. So, and I would say that ultimately for each and every human being on this path called the human existence, that is the ultimate question for each of us. It's not a matter of what path of practice is better or worse, right? It's actually deeply knowing oneself and what is most important. So Suzuki Roshi, I don't know, maybe, maybe many of you have heard this story. If you were to ask Suzuki Roshi, what is most important? You get uh, a lot of different, a lot of different answers. Oh, I left my other notes somewhere else. Oops. Um, so what's the what's a, one example of something that Suzuki might say is the most important, most important point. So usually sometimes uh, if you search the archive of his Dharma talks for the words most important point, <laughs> you'll find all kinds of important points. So from something like um, Austerity. Sometimes he says austerity is the most important point. Living simply. Sometimes he'll say the Sangha is the most important point. Sometimes he says Zazen is the most important point. Maybe often he says Zazen is the most important point. But the one I think uh, resonates the most, at least today, <laughs> For me is when he says the most important point is to remember what the most important point is <laughs> or even to take a step further to ask oneself meaning to look inside and ask one's own heart what is most important what is the most important thing for this one And how do we do that? How do we do that, uh, that inquiry? What supports our ability to ask that question? Do we need money? Do we need time? Do we need to be young? Do we need to be old and wiser? really supports us to ask that question with that open-heartedness, with the open curiosity. Not like when we ask the question and an answer floats out of our existence, that that's the right answer, right? And I think that's the lesson of Suzuki Roshi's asking this, uh, this question and coming up with so many different answers, right? And he was so emphatic, if you listen to his Dharma talks, he's so emphatic when he said, this is the most important point. Oh, yeah, and then you might write it down in your journal <laughs> and come back to it. Like, that's the most important point. That's dead practice, though. A live practice is to ask that question, which is why I so uh, appreciate you know, this idea that the most important point is not to forget, right? to remember. Not the fixed view that you had when you were you know, 12 or yesterday when you were having lunch or when you were sitting zazen and had an aha moment. But to be able to drop everything, come back to this breath, 
turn inward and ask yourself the question, what is the most important thing? Now, I would say that very often, maybe, maybe most of the time, things get in the way <laughs> of our being able to really ask the question. So uh, in the 1940s, when meditation was started, started in, in Southeast Asia, in Asia, to be uh, given to householders in a structured environment, in a temple setting. And uh, coming out of that, you had a, a large, uh, not large, you had a few uh, travelers from Western countries that went to Asia and took part in learning these practices and came home with them and brought them into Western culture, retreat culture, bringing back the teachings as lay practitioners. So if you take, for example, the insight meditation movement, right, they're all lay practitioners for the most part. Maybe some of them have done some anastomy, actually all of them probably have done some retreat uh, practice, right? but most of them have families, have jobs. They do not uh, renounce all worldly affairs. But the cultivation of having uh, time to go, maybe what you might call to go on retreat. Now, when we sit a period of zazen, and that's what we're doing. We're going on retreat from the busyness of trying to take care of all the little details of our lives and our loved ones and our job and the worries and concerns for when we sit down in zazen and we exhale we let go of everything and then when we inhale we receive the world anew and we give ourselves that gift why why do we do that? We can remember. <laughs> yeah, so we can ask, we have some room, we have some spaciousness to turn to that question. What is most important in this life, in my life, with my particular circumstances, with my particular karmic constructions, with my particular culture, and whatever was given to me, whether it's gender or orientation or uh, ethnicity, ethnic background, race, whatever it is, how do I be completely in my life? Sure, there's likes and dislikes. There's things you'd rather have or not have, but you make room for all of it. You ask that question. And so whether you're a monastic or a priest, which is like a whole other thing, I have to say, it's a whole other thing from being a monastic. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure what, what it is. <laughs> um, and then being a householder, right? these are, all these things are not mutually exclusive, it turns out. Um, But what makes somebody able to, uh, in this cultivation of spaciousness, to find out what's most important? How many of us are find ourselves turned towards wanting to share what we've learned, to make it accessible to other people? So. For example, to bring meditation practice to prisons, to hospitals, to people who just may want to learn, to be able to uh, organize and gather 
groups to support one another in this process of turning inward, teaching meditation, teaching how to sit down and shut up. <laughs> so Pat, I don't even know how long or when, how, what got you into teaching uh, meditation in prisons, but Pat's practice started before Austin Zen Center was here in the Rinzai tradition. She went on retreat. And I know I've heard your way saving mind talk, but something led you to go on retreat for the first time. And maybe you'll say something about it later in your ceremony. I hope so. But something led her down the path to practice and led her deeply down that path. Now, it included doing retreats, doing lots of shishin, which again, cultivates uh, the space to ask the question. It's not a, just to do retreats. Oh, look, I did, you know, look how many shishins I've done, right? It's definitely not like a yardstick by which to measure oneself by. I mean, I can just say for myself, I've sat a lot of shishins and some of them were like, you know, was I, uh, was I cultivating the path? Was I was I asking the question, what's the most important? No, probably not. I was actually like, why am I here? <laughs> what is this retreat going to add? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so for, for most of us. Uh, in some ways, Lucky is the one who you know finds himself cultivating a retreat practice, and it's all bliss realm. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard many stories of uh, some of the insight meditation folks who went to Thailand and to Burma and practiced long and hard. You know, it suited them. And so they stayed for many, many years. And then when they got back to their home culture, <laughs> all that cultivation seemed to just go flying out the window. All of a sudden, sexual desire, whoa, <laughs> right? Greed, oh no. A monastic life, I will say, is the intention of a monastic life or the intention and practice of monastic living, or maybe even you could say retreat living, um, which is different from monastic living, but very similar in terms of what you do during your days. It's devised to make it easy. <laughs> It's devised entirely, like the primary function is to make it really simple for you to practice. So it's all, and people think, oh, you went to the monastery, that must have been so hard. Oh, no, lay life is hard. <laughs> Trying to cultivate that spaciousness within the context of juggling your daily life, the things that seem to detract from stillness and concentration and the development of the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and wisdom, right? Trying to maintain a lay life and make room for practice is much, much harder than giving it all up and going to the monastery. Much harder. And so when one of us is able to turn towards that opening, that heart opening, and finds themselves able to be, to look around and say, hey, this is really cool. I love this. And I'm able to settle in a way that I've never been able to settle. How can I come with me? <laughs> hey, you over there, would you like to sit down with me and just be instead of do? And so Pat, I just, uh, I don't know if many of you know this, but with her many years of teaching, she's the main part, she's the coordinator for our Zazen instruction here at Austin Zen Center and has trained many people in how to do Zazen instruction and has encouraged people to come to Zazen instruction and has taken Zazen instruction into other areas outside of a temple uh, environment. So with all of us, though, when we turn to this question, if we can, if we have this, the ability to turn to the question of what's most important, 
what do we find? For some people, it may be uh, maybe another question beyond what's most important, or another way to say it, or to ask this question, might be something like, what do I want to endeavor towards benefiting in my life? What's important that I endeavor, that I take it up as my intention to act on behalf of? Is it making lots of money and going into space? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> For some people, that may be the most important point. <laughs> Is it... Uh, committing oneself to um, some form of activism for social justice. Maybe sometimes that's the most important point. Is it to make the Dharma accessible to as, to as many people who are interested? I say who are interested as opposed to uh, you know, whether they want it or not, I'm going to make it accessible to them because you know Buddhism is not a proselytizing conversion religion, even though that kind of happens sometimes. But at its root, it's not proselytizing. And make the Dharma accessible for anybody who wants it, for all beings who would like it. So in asking that question, what do I, maybe another way to ask it is, what do I spend my time cultivating? We're doing and not to ask that question of your inner critic who will say wow you really do spend too much time on Netflix or, <laughs> or what have you right? but to actually really in an open-hearted curious way to look at what do I want to spend my life this one precious life committing to not in an intellectual way but really coming back to your heart and what makes your heart open and getting really quiet and still so that you can hear it. Because I can tell you for myself, without that quiet stillness, it's easy to miss because you're on autopilot, you're just doing the next thing. And in terms of encouragement and encouraging oneself and encouraging others, like, how do we encourage one another? Do we tell people what to do? Oh, you should do this. No, not really. I mean, it doesn't really work. We do. <laughs> it doesn't work. But by example, by finding places like Zen centers and saying, hey, maybe we can get together and have a group, a study group, a discussion group, a writing group. Um, and we challenge one another. This is another benefit of Sangha, is that we can challenge one another. Not challenge in a, like, you know, not challenge you. <laughs> but in, a, in a, a, friend, in a way that is friendly, respectful, and kind. Because all of us are mirrors to one another. And we, we reflect back and forward to one another. One of the things that I, uh, uh, as many of you know, I took a leave a few, a year ago, over a little bit over a year ago, I took a leave of absence for uh, like eight weeks. And I decided I was going to, I mean, I didn't have a real big plan. I actually wanted to not do anything mm -hmm. for that eight weeks. That was kind of my plan. Like, just don't do anything. Don't, don't follow a schedule. Don't make any plans. Just like, try being. I ended up, of course, doing a bunch of different things like, that I wasn't anticipating. Um, but one of the things I didn't do, I didn't go on any meditation retreats. And uh, you know who called me out on that? Ah. <laughs> and I so appreciated it. Actually, I mean, it was like it was a year later. 
the tests that we do for one another in Sangha in a kind, respectful, and uh, maybe humorous way, too. Humor goes a long, long, long way. So, getting back to this question of what is how, what is one's intent? How do you find out what your intention is and what's most important? And sometimes when we cultivate the space to do that, we are surprised. And things that we grew up thinking and believing actually get turned on their heads. Hopefully that happens, actually. Hopefully uh, our ingrained patterns that were given to us from even before we were born, hopefully we are able to kindly uh, question those. There's a, uh, uh, a movie that's showcasing at South by Southwest, I think today or tomorrow. Uh, many of you may not have heard of it. I only heard of it because we have uh, one of the person, uh, the people who worked on the movie, his brother is a uh, Soto Zen priest. He's gonna come here this afternoon to support his brother. Uh, the movie, which I haven't seen, but I've just read about, is called Mama Bears. Anyone heard of this movie? No one here has heard of the movie. Yeah, I didn't hear about it. The only way I heard about it was through uh, Ryushin Hart talking about his brother's involvement in the movie. So the movie, as far as I can gather, is set in Texas. Uh, it sort of started in Texas, this movement, it's a documentary, called the Mama Bears. And basically, it is a group of highly conservative evangelical Christian mothers who felt quite comfortable in their uh, in their cultures, but who um, had the experiencing had the experience of having someone they deeply loved their child uh, come out as transgender, and they started this movement basically within the evangelical Christian world to push back against the idea that somehow there was something drastically wrong with their children and that their children were going to go to hell and find themselves in eternal damnation. So they, you know, actually, I don't think people that. And I'm going to push back against this a little bit. So the movie's a documentary about their journey and uh, for those of you who, who do have a social activist bent and would want to be involved, this Monday, I think at noon, noon at the Capitol, a group of mama bears are going to protest the, uh, the current situation, which was temporarily on hold, right, where uh, Child Protective Services has been issued the order to investigate anyone who has a child who's going through any kind of gender uh, gender-affirming care. You probably, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. <laughs> so here's an example of looking at one's, uh, what's really most important <laughs> and saying, actually, this is really important, even if it goes against something that I also think is really important. So it takes a lot of courage a lot of courage to go against the tide of one's karmic conditioning, one's cultural conditioning. So, of the many different forms of practice, some of you may end up entering into a monastery someday. And maybe you find yourself staying there a long time. And then you come out and uh, you find that Many things have changed, but some things haven't changed. And you still have to deal with the fact that you are you. <laughs> and you have your same, uh, these karmic conditions uh, until you turn and, and face them, hopefully with an open heart, with a curious mind, until you're able to step back into them
you may find yourself finding, uh, you find yourself in those same patterns. And only when you come up against them is some kind of transformation possible. So this afternoon in the ceremony of lay entrustment, it, there's two parts to the ceremony. The first part is, uh, as we mentioned, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and receiving precepts, receiving bodhisattva precepts. So it's a lay ordination ceremony. The first half is a lay ordination ceremony. And in this uh, ceremony, Pat will receive her new Rakasu. And then we have a break and there'll be, uh, we'll kind of rearrange the space. And the second half of the ceremony is a Dharma inquiry ceremony where we get to uh, witness Pat in action. <laughs> she will be questioned by uh, some loving, kind members of our community, and we'll get to hear from uh, some of her long-time spiritual friends on the path who will uh, say some encouraging words, or maybe, you know, who knows, who knows what they'll say. <laughs> they may be like, Remember that day when you no 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 no? I'm still angry with you. Probably not though. So, are there any questions or comments or expressions before we we close? I realize I don't have. I do have a watch. It's eleven thirteen. Yes, Charles. So there's Dharma transmission, you sometimes call it, or priests, whatever those are. <laughs> and then there's this, and then there's Dharma entrustment, which is what we're we witness and participate in today. And so I just you don't want to really talk about the priest practice or the difference or but what exactly does Dharma entrustment other than a celebration and recognition, what is the purpose or what comes out of a Dharma entrustment? Yes, I've been hearing announcements all week about, you know, Pat's first Dharma talk as a lay entrusted teacher. Yes. So, like things like that. So what is that? Because we're hearing about Yes, that. yes, thank you for that. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I, I think we will find out. And I think that this is a Dharma gate that Pat will be entering. Um, one thing I can say about the, I mean, again, these are these terms like teacher, right? Pat has been a practice leader here for a very long time, since like 2013, is that true? 2012? So about 10 years, Pat has been one of the practice leaders here at Austin Zen Center. And how do you become a practice leader? <laughs> Maybe a, another, yes, yeah, kind of taking a step back. <laughs> um, when we have practice periods, sometimes we ask somebody, and somebody is invited to become a, what's called a shuso, or the head student. In monasteries, it's called a head monk. They might be ordained as a priest or not. And during that practice period, they share the seat with the teacher and they start giving talks for the first time, public talks. And they start meeting with uh, other students. They meet with students uh, informally for tea. And all these things are like, they're stepping in, they're wading into the shallow waters. <laughs> and then soon they start having practice discussion after they've been Chuso. Usually it takes maybe six months to a year after one's Shuso ship. Oh, and they're, they're tested in Dharma combat. They, they go through a Dharma <laughs> combat ceremony, <laughs> where everybody in the practice period, you know, in rapid fire, asks them questions and tests their understanding and they spontaneously give answers. And again, it's not about thinking when they do this. It's not a, 
I mean, that's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap to think it's about thing to to find it, uh, to find yourself thinking in these exchanges. It's not about what you think. Right? It's what what you trust in yourself that comes out of the ex of the moment of the expression. So it requires that doesn't require, but it really helps if you can be really present right, and drop away any preconceived notions so that you can be spontaneously awake and responsive to the moment. So after this practice period of shusoship, at some point that person may, not always, but may be invited to start giving Dharma talks, public talks, and they may be invited to become a practice leader where they meet one-on-one -on -one with anyone who would like to talk about the Dharma with them. Now, it's interesting because how many of you have never had a practice discussion, like a one-on-one -on -one practice discussion? Actually, how many of you have had a practice discussion? <laughs> so most of you have had practice discussions where you've gone in and had a, you know, you've had a question, or maybe you didn't have a question. Maybe you just wanted to sit together. It's pretty wide open what happens, what's brought up in a practice discussion context. It's about practice, right? Which, in some ways, you could say practice includes your entire life. But oftentimes, you start off with practice discussion, you're talking, you're asking about something about your, you know, your zazen experience, or your practice as a householder. How do you practice cultivation of compassion and loving kindness? You're struggling at work, and somebody's really irritating you, and you find yourself losing your composure. You know, anything, is there anything that can help with that? These are the kinds of questions that one might bring up in a practice discussion. And so, as a practice leader, the empowerment has been given to meet people for practice discussion. Then, after, I don't know, 10 years or so of that, <laughs> or maybe less, maybe more, that person may be uh, asked, again, asked to receive lay entrustment, to receive dharma entrustment. It's not something that you say, you know what, I think I'm ready for this. Will you do this? Although I think that does happen. Sometimes people will ask, but um, usually it's, uh, it's an invitation. And it's an invitation of acknowledgement. I think first and foremost, an acknowledgement of the person as more than a practice leader, but also a teacher. So, and we, you know, we use the word teacher very uh, loosely often, right? We can say that somebody who, uh, the person who arrived at the Zen Center before you did, <laughs> in some ways, is your teacher, right? Because they know where the shoes go. <laughs> they know how to arrange the cushions, right? And maybe that person then learns how to do various ceremonial roles, and then they teach others. And so in that way, they're a teacher. But that's a very informal way of using the word teacher. So lay entrustment, I think, is, uh, as Anne said, it's a rare thing to invite someone to be teacher, to be called a teacher, to be treated as a teacher. Does that kind of answer the question? Yes, and I think that uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> every, because there's a comment is that every, as every Dharma Their own way, as that's what happens. Yes, yeah, that's what there's we're talking about. No, there's no script. Really. <laughs> there's no script. Through that door. And... Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Jess. Um, I thought it was really cool how you were talking about um, the fact that our, that Zen is one of the only uh, practices that have this this lay thing going on. Not that it has a lay thing going on. It's that the division between lay practice and monastic, well, and I'd say priest practice is is not clear. Not very, right. Not as clear. Yeah. In, in many ways. As yeah. It, as it is in other traditions where it's like the, very clear. Right. 
and and I think that's cool. Um, and I wonder, like, I think that words are kind of like divisive by nature. And so like, it's definitely my tendency coming in when I came into the practice to think like, oh, well, obviously, Dharma transmission is the best, you know, the highest and then priest and whatever. And then I've kind of, um, like, over time, I have realized that I think that there is a different way, like, there's a different opening um, to the lay entrusted people, like, with the Sangha. And it, of course, depends on the person and stuff. Like, but I think that there is... Um, like the lack of formal, like the fact that they're not wearing actual robes and like this and that, like maybe um, there's something that they bring um, that is different. Absolutely. And I was wondering if you've seen that. Yes. There are so many ways to be of benefit to uh, the cultivation of practice for all beings, right? There's so many ways that one can do that from supporting the temple in all kinds of ways, whether it's, you know, doing the flower arrangement for the ceremonies. It's coming up with the technology to stream a video out to the world <laughs> and, and effort, you know, efforting on behalf of of those things, right? To uh, offering meditation instruction, to learning ceremonial <clears throat> roles. You know, you don't need to be a priest to learn ceremonial roles at all. Now, priests do, of course, have a particular uh, responsibility to carry on the traditional forms of practice. That's something that a priest commits to. But even how one, I mean, maybe even ultimately coming back to what do you do with your own mind? Do you lean towards kindness in your own mind? Do you lean towards peacefulness? Or do you lean towards divisiveness and being right <laughs> and telling other people about it or what have you? So yes, many different, many, many, I mean, the opportunities for discovering what is my practice? You know, I think this is a, you know, a question that can be asked every morning upon waking, like really freshly, like what is my practice today in the moment, right? You might find yourself like rushing around like I find myself doing a lot and, uh, and you might be in your car, you might be getting mad at somebody who's in front of you and not moving or whatever it is. And to ask yourself the question, what is my practice in this moment? Because if you pause and ask that question, you'll find that you will do something very different from what your auto habits are. Right? Just by putting a little bit of that space, bringing, infusing a little bit of spaciousness right there, that's what your practice is. You don't need to be ordained. You don't, you don't need to be Buddhist. <laughs> you don't need to be Buddhist to do that. It's just this is the, this is the clothing that we wear in our journey in this thing called human existence. Which we're all endeavoring. All, all of us, without exception, want to wake up. Maybe we don't want to do the, the, the work that we think we need to do. Maybe we find that we just don't have the energy sometimes. But all of us, without exception, want to wake up. We want to be woken up. Yes, is that Dave? Yeah. Hello. Hello. the conversation about what's the most important thing. And um, I'm just thinking about how much it's changed over the course of one's 
question implies like a very finite, concrete answer. What's the most important? No. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, everything changes. So, um, yes. Uh, so I love that we get that Suzuki Rizzi got the most important thing is to ask the question. That just um, that, that has created a very lovely uh, loop in my brain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because we get, we get stuck get fixed and so to ask the question again to know that things change everything actually <laughs> everything changes thank you yeah so I guess I just want to show I found a little bit discomforting and in a good way that Realizing how quickly what the most important thing is changes, like how inconsistent that is. And, you know, obviously there's like an ego you want to latch on to. Um, and then just realizing how quickly that focus changes was a little bit of a shock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's also liberating. Yeah. You know, if you think about what the most important thing to you was two years ago, it's probably not the same thing, or it's shifted. How about five years ago, ten years ago, when you were 13? <laughs> the most important thing is always shifting. So, and then maybe I should say a little bit, just a little bit about what do you do with that information, right? When you find that, when you have something bubble up from your the ground of your being of like this is actually the most important thing when that happens is it just like a passing thought do you then do something about it what what do you end up doing right if it's truly the most important thing even if it's just temporarily the most important thing it may require that you might have to change some things to reorganize your priorities so that you support doing that thing Right? If the most important thing for you is to become a concert violinist, you might want to practice the violin. Right? So it would change your, or, you know, what you do with your time. And necessarily because the time that, apparently, the time that we have is finite, um, it means that we might have to let go of some things. This is the part of renunciation that's, you know, not just a, a monastic practice. Renunciation is not just monastic practice. Maybe you could say that renunciation is part of, is a more emphasized part of practice for monastics, right? Because you're cutting out a lot of uh, sort of, I don't want to say ordinary things, because when you're in the monastery, everything is ordinary, actually. In some ways, maybe even more ordinary, right? But you're taking yourself out of certain endeavors so that you can focus more strongly on others. Right? And so when you ask the question, what's the most important point, and something comes forth, like how do you, how do you make space for that to inform what you do with your life, what you spend your time doing, what you spend your energy on, what you spend money on, right? all of those things, you know, not in a, not in a kind of, uh, you know, what should you do, although that's an important question, but looking deeply again inside, what leads to uh, more kindness, more equanimity, more peacefulness, more feeling of ease and joy, not temporary joy, <clears throat> Sorry? Or less desire for all of those things. In what? Less desire for equanimity, yeah, harmony. Because it, because it becomes its own trap. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Oh, it's so tricky. 
Do you all hear that? Maybe less desire for all of those things. Right. Less grasping, less desire. Right. I'm confused. <laughs> um, and I, I think that the way that I'm hearing you describe what's the most important thing is very different than what my understanding of this question is in the past, is that what my conception of the, what is the most important thing is almost a way to touch into something that's very um, deep and timeless and unchanging and essential, uh-huh. and that whatever happens after that is like flowing out of that question, like whether I decide to be a political activist or mm-hmm. a life coach, or you know, it's but it's that's not the action in the world that I take is not the most important thing. The most right. Yes. Yes. Um, if I said anything that was confusing, I apologize. And I think what you're bringing up is exactly what I'm trying to say, which it's not necessarily, I mean, when you ask the question, what is the most important thing, or what's the most important point, that if you ask the question, like I said, was suggesting, like, if you ask that question every morning, right, given your, you know, the constraints of your life, the, you know, you might answer that question from the mind of, like, well, what do I have to get done today? <laughs> and that's not what I mean. I mean, like, putting all of the that aside and going deeper to what serves that thing that is um, undeniably where the ground of your heart is. And it can look like different things at different moments, depending on your circumstances. But what serves asking that question and being really open to what's underneath that? So you may even you know, use this question as a repeating question, right? So you ask the question and you come up with one layer of that, an answer. And then you ask the question again, okay, well, what's the most important point? And you keep having to challenge that. What's deeper than that? What's even more fundamental? Right? And getting progressively beyond sort of like the superficial layers. And so if you find that uh, you're clinging or, you know, if it's like finding peace is you're doing that in a grasping way, that's actually, uh, I don't know if you've had that experience. I know I, I have where, stop it, I'm trying to be peaceful. <laughs> like, you actually undermine your own peace because you're grasping so hard at, you know, oh, I need to be this way. Or I should, you shoot all over yourself. That uh, actually defeats the purpose. So, how do you know when you're doing that and you're defeating the purpose? You start to get uh, miserable. <laughs> 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 you start becoming miserable. Exactly. I, I have to share this last thing. I, we have to end, but I wanted to share this one thing, which is a, okay. It's a poster board that has in red, it's written out, uh, there's a message that's written out on this big, you know, built-in board. And then somebody's come along and in blue has kind of crossed out some things and added something else. So that's the context of this. In red, it says, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. (laughs) (laughs) And then someone's come along and crossed it out in blue and they crossed out, they they left do what you love and you'll, but then they crossed out you'll never work a day in your life. And they wrote, do what you love and you'll work super hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything extremely personally. (laughs) 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 So when you 
find yourself <laughs> in that situation, then maybe, you know, take a step back <laughs> and uh, find that empty space where you can really, like, listen to your heart. And if your heart says, no, how about this? Listen to it. <laughs> the replacement phrase was work super hard all of the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything extremely personally. <laughs> Sorry for going on for much longer than anticipated, which is something I 